This is Robert Fleming, a partner in the Tucson, Arizona law firm, Elder Law Firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. And you're listening to Elder Law Issues, our weekly podcast. My usual uh, co-host guest, I'm not quite sure exactly what our relationship is. Let's call ourselves partners because we are. My partner is Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. And uh, Elizabeth, today we are going to talk about record keeping for fiduciaries fiduciaries, particularly conservators. For someone who has been appointed conservator of the estate for an incapacitated adult, we don't actually say incapacitated adult, we say person in need of protection, but that's kind of a mouthful, so we will often shorten it. For the conservator, what kind of record keeping do you tell your conservator clients they need to do? Well, I tell them, first of all, I'm sorry. (laughs) They're going to have a lot of receipts to keep. They should be making very, very special attention when they pay for anything, how they're paying for it, how they're keeping track of all of this. Robert, one thing I want to make sure everybody listening to today remembers is that we're talking about Arizona law. And in Arizona, we have a guardian of the person and a conservator for the estate. So when we talk about conservatorships and record keeping, we're not going to be talking to people about keeping track of medical records, for instance. We're going to be talking to people about keeping track of copays and how they've been paying for different kinds of prescriptions or caregiving services, but not record keeping as it relates to actual hospitalizations or decisions related to somebody's treatment. When we talk about conservators and record keeping, the main thing for people to keep in mind is is that every year the court is actually going to look at your records. So the court is going to either tell you yay or nay. And if they do not approve your annual accounting, then that's a huge headache. And a few years ago, Arizona adopted a some rules related to record keeping and these crazy Excel spreadsheets. So if you're a conservator in Arizona, unfortunately, you can't just put all your receipts in an envelope and send it off to the courthouse. Robert, can you talk a little bit about your perspective on the decision to start requiring certain forms for conservators? Well, the the new rules that you allude to, Elizabeth, uh, changed the the particular look of of accounts for uh, conservators but didn't change the underlying requirement that you do an account. And it's never been okay to just stuff uh, receipts in an envelope and mail them in. I, I realize you were just using that as a, as a metaphorical uh, device, but that has never been acceptable. Now, um, in order to simplify things for conservators, they developed these forms that are so much harder to do than the older forms that they were replacing that it almost always, in, my, in our experience, my experience, your experience, our experience, requires an attorney to do the accounting for you, at least for the first year or two when you're a conservator. And that was pretty much true before, but it is very much true today with those complicated rules. You do have to um, be able to show every transaction. You have to be able to lump it into categories. So these are utility payments, and these are medical payments, and these are uh, health care, uh, home health care, whatever. Uh, and, uh, and you also have to be able to, to have available. You don't file them with the court. But you have to have available receipts for all of those things. And Robert, I think one of the things people need to keep in mind, the reason and the rationale that 
the court has these requirements, of course, is because they want to make sure that they know how the conservator is spending the protected person's money, in what ways, what you like you said categories but also in what form they are making payment so for instance if you're a conservator and you've taken out a credit card to pay bills on somebody's behalf you need to make sure you have very careful records of that because the court may ask to see them i think it's rare but on occasion when we have somebody who's acting as conservator for the very first time they're trying to do the protected person a favor by sometimes paying for things right out of their own pocket and saying that they'll be reimbursed at a later date. But then all of a sudden you get into the prospect that there may be a commingling of funds. And I think that's one of the things people need to keep in mind that the court is very concerned about. It's one of the reasons why conservators have to post a bond every year. If you put all of your payments on behalf of your mother for whom you're a conservator, if you put all those payments on your credit card and then you reimburse yourself at the end of the month, well, you might be able to show by receipts that you've done it correctly, but it just it sends up red flags when a $10,000 check gets written to you uh, and you say, oh, I have receipts to justify all that. Yeah, there are going to be some more questions. So one of the things we suggest, if you're going to put things on credit cards, you might pay the bill, the credit card bill, directly out of the conservatorship account. So you put $8,000 on the credit card, 2,000 of them are yours, and 6,000 of, of them are your mother's. Write a $6,000 check out of your mother's conservatorship account to the credit card company. Uh, you still have the receipts to show what the individual transactions were. Here's the most important tip though. Just don't use cash. Don't ever go to the ATM for your mother's uh, account uh, don't ever go pay cash and then uh, and then reimburse yourself. Don't ever go to the bank and cash a check and then pay with cash. If you're doing home repairs for yourself, you might go down to Lowe's and hand them $120 for the parts and the and the special wrench you need, uh, and and that would be the way you would live your life. But do not do that with your mother's conservatorship account. You're going to get in trouble. We're going to have a hard time explaining it. And even though it's only $120 in the $18,000 that you spent or the $130,000 or whatever huge number you spent in taking care of your mother, that $120 is the one that is going to cost several hundreds or thousands of dollars in additional lawyer time to explain to the court. And Robert, one thing that's important to note here is, is that when we talk about the court, we're not only mentioning or alluding to judges and commissioners, there's actually a court accountant. And that's important for people to know. It, it's not somebody who doesn't have any background in accounting that's going to be doing the initial reviews of these conservatorship accountings. It's, it's actually somebody who is trained and very experienced in accounting, particularly in the areas of conservatorships. So when I meet people and they have great ideas of how to be efficient or how to streamline the process, what I try and explain to them is, is that we're really playing the long game here. It's a marathon. When we look through the accounting every single year, we need to be prepared for the court accountant to do the same thing. I will say that people frequently have questions for me about when they are making purchases, You know, how much money can they spend on their mother's hairdresser, or how much money can be spent on transportation for a parent or a sibling. And what we talk about then are budgets. 
And believe it or not, Robert, every single conservatorship is going to have a budget. And one of the things that the court accountant will review is, are you over budget? Have you ended up really exceeding the budget? And if you have, that's one of the things here in Pima County that means you need to amend the budget. So when I talk to conservators, they need to keep in mind that there are so many different ways to get in the weeds. And it's important not only to be forthcoming and well-organized, but to know in advance what the expectations are. One of the things that probably helps is for people who act as their mothers or their fathers or their cousins or whoever's conservator to come visit with us once or twice during the year so that we can see what their records look like and make suggestions for how it's going to be better. Uh, so often people just wait till the end of the year and then bring in the shoebox of receipts and, and, uh, and, and a, a check register that is not very complete and expect us to sort it out. And um, if we could see them a couple times during the year, maybe we could get better information together for, for when we have to prepare the accounting. Planning ahead is important, Robert. And sometimes we see people after a year or two come in and somebody might be both guardian and conservator for a parent or sibling or spouse and decide that they're just done being conservator, that they really want to focus on the healthcare decision making and their relationship with the person and they just don't want to deal with the dollars and the cents and the record keeping. Those are cases where Fleming and Curdy may step in and offer to serve as conservator. We may also refer you elsewhere to other fiduciaries in the community who might be a better fit. It's all very case specific, but we do see sometimes people just throw up their hands and decide that they want to go back to basics. And, and what that means for many people is making the essential decisions, the everyday decisions about care. One of the big questions, um, and I'm going to tee up the question and then going to tell you, we're not going to answer it today, but you can see where this is headed. A big question is, can I charge a fee to be my father's conservator? And the answer is yes, um, but there's a lot of, uh, of caution and, uh, and, and it's important to keep very good records about fees. And we're going to talk about that in a separate episode one time because that is a huge issue on its own. But it's just another way to say, keep good records, keep written records, make them contemporaneous for everything you do as conservator. The, the judge is going to be looking at this. The court accountant is going to be looking at it. Uh, and you're going to have to be able to prove that you've done the right thing. Did we scare you yet? Um, well, we don't really mean to scare you, but it is hard work to be a conservator and it's risky work. And, and so you need to go into it with open eyes and, uh, and a willingness to, to keep good records. With that cautionary note, we're going to end. This is Robert Fleming. I've been chatting with Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. We are two of the partners at Fleming and Curdy PLC, a Tucson, Arizona elder law firm. Uh, let me just repeat what Elizabeth said earlier. This, this conversation about conservatorship accounting is very Arizona specific. Some of the principles may apply if you are a conservator or guardian of the estate in another state, but talk to your own lawyer to make sure that, uh, that we haven't given you information that would not be accurate in your state. Um, we, uh, this is what we do for a living. So we're happy to talk to people who are a conservator in Arizona about what their obligations are. And we hope that you'll join us for our next podcast. I think we're going to talk about record keeping for other kinds of fiduciaries, trustees, 
and personal representatives of estates. So we'll talk with you then.